But I'm beginning a new series this morning. We're going to preach, go through the book of Philippians. Okay, verse by verse. So, let's pray and ask God's anointing on this. Our Father in heaven, we come to you with a host of different things in our lives and in our minds. And we want to, to submit them to you now before your throne. Good, bad, happy, sad, trying, frustrating, whatever it may be, Lord. We lay it before your feet. We ask you to give us the joy that is found in a deep-seated relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit would bubble up and fulfill us because we know that that is what you desire. You desire us to be settled in Christ. Use these words, Lord God, that we are about to embark on, the word of your truth, to cultivate that kind of joy in us. For the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the people that need to be in the kingdom, and in the power and the character in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, I pray. Amen. C.S. Lewis, if you've read much of him, uh, inevitably you have run across a statement that C.S. Lewis made. He said once that joy is the serious business of heaven. That's why I've entitled this series, Joy in Christ. It's serious business. You will never experience full joy in your life until you become fully serious about serving Christ. Never. Not full joy. It's an old story that was told of a laborer who was mature, was a mature Christian, and gave a solid testimony before all who knew him. And his boss came to him one day and said, you know, the, you know whatever you've got, I want it. By the way, did anybody come to you and say that? I'd like it if people came and said that to me all the time, wouldn't you? You have such peace and joy and contentment. How can I get this? The laborer, in a style reminiscent of Jesus with the rich young ruler, said to the man, his boss, go to your home, put on your best suit, and come down here and work in the mud with me the rest of the day, and then you can have it. You can have what I have. What are you talking about, he said. I could never do that. I'm the boss. You're the worker. I can't do that. It's beneath my dignity. The boss came back a couple of months later and said, I ask you again, what is it that you have and how can I get it? I told you, the man said, you go home, put on your best suit, come down and work in the mud with us, and then you can have it. And the boss got furious and he walked off. Finally, in desperation, he came back to the laborer and said, I don't care what it takes. I'll do it. I'll do anything. The laborer said, will you put on your best suit and come down here and work in the mud with us? The boss finally agreed that he would do even that. And the laborer said, you don't have to. You see, the laborer knew exactly what was standing between the boss and God. Christ, pride, and self. Oftentimes, the primary thing standing between many Christians and a life of full joy, regardless of the circumstances that they're in, is a heart that is not totally invested in serving Christ. 
What has Christ called us to do? Make disciples, right? Promote the gospel. That's what he's called us to do. And in the process of that, we glorify God. What usually prevents us from doing just what Jesus called us to do? Pride and self. All of us want and need joy in our lives. The world will tell you that all you need is the power of positive thinking, right? Be positive. Speak positive words. Think positive thoughts. And there have been volumes and volumes written on it, and they still are being written. Even by many so-called Christian writers, go to the Christian bookstore if you can find one nowadays. There's not many of them left. Go online and, and just check out the uh, positive thinking section. Health and wealth and prosperity. There's no end to the books. Yet many of them seem to leave out the most important element of positive thinking, a proper focus on Jesus Christ. Without that focus, positive thinking becomes nothing more than humanistic philosophy. Years ago, some of you may recognize the name, many of you probably won't now, but Norman Vincent Peale wrote books on the power of positive thinking, quote, that's the title of the book, right? The Apostle Paul has written books on the power of Jesus Christ. Some insightful believer once said that that's what makes Paul appealing and Peel appalling. <laughs> you can go to the bookstore or you can go to the Bible, take your pick, but you will reap the results of whichever one you commit yourself to. Let me ask you, do you want joy in your life? You want success? You want true spiritual prosperity? Then Paul has a book for you. It's entitled Philippians that gives you all the spiritual elements that you need to live a joyful, powerful, positive life. I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Of the 13 letters Paul wrote to the churches, the 13 canonical letters that Paul wrote to the churches, and if you don't know what the word canonical means, I'm going to challenge you to look it up and figure it out. I'm not going to give it to you. No spoon feeding. This letter seems to strike the most personal chord of all of his letters. The tone is one of warmth. It's one of gratitude, one of joy and encouragement. There are no sharp reprimands in this letter, as in some of the other letters, as you well know. There is a deep and personal intimacy with these people of Philippi. Just look at the opening chapter. Follow along with me. I'm going to read the first 12 verses just to give us some context. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, 
since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's just stand right there, verse 11. And look at what Paul says in these first few verses. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Verse 4, always offering prayer with joy for you. Verse 7 says, I have you in my heart. In verse 8, this is kind of the, like the, the peak here. How I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. What kind of affection is that that he's talking about? Well, it's the kind that sent Jesus to the cross. The kind that caused him to submit to arrest, to torture, and to death, as Matt Chandler put it. That's some pretty deep affection, isn't it? It's not the Hollywood-style affection that you've come to know. Sure, Paul loved all the churches that he wrote to, but you're not going to find that language in any of Paul's other letters to the churches. In verse 12... He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He calls them brethren. Paul says, I have you in my thoughts. I have you in my heart. I have you in my prayers. I have you in my plan. Look, you're part of my life. That's what he's saying. He wrote this book from a prison cell, most likely in Rome knowing that his death could happen at any moment. Yet in spite of this one major theme of this book, the major theme of this book is joy. What would you be writing if you were in a prison cell? He mentions joy, rejoicing, and gladness at least 19 times in these four chapters of this book. Paul overflowed with joy and wanted to share the secret of that joy with these close friends of his. What is the secret? Wouldn't we all like to know? We're about to. As we get to the end of this book, you should know it by then. How can you have joy in the midst of a world that is seriously broken? And our world is seriously broken. Would you agree to that? By having the right attitude, for one, it begins with a person's mindset. Again, Paul uses words that deal with one's mindset and attitudes in this book at least 16 times. For example, chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And then he goes on to talk about what kind of attitude Christ had. Chapter 3, verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And perfect, by the way, doesn't mean like completely sinless. We'll get to that when we get there. It's mature and whole. Let us, therefore, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that 
to also to you. Actually, you know, when you kind of look at all the different scriptures on this, Paul really does write about the power of positive thinking. But this is much more than a self-help book. Paul realized something that we often fail to realize, that right thinking that results in right living must have the right focus. And that brings us to the most important theme of this entire book, that we can experience true joy when the focus of our minds and attitudes are on Jesus Christ. That's the focus of the book. That's the secret that Paul wants to share with us. Look at chapter 4 for a moment, beginning in verse 10. Now I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at least you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You talk about a crescendo. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does that mean you can be seven foot ten and play pro basketball if you're in Christ Jesus? No. Don't yank that verse out of context and put it on a coffee cup and claim it. I can do anything in Christ Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. Basically, what he's saying is, I can have deep, settled joy and fulfillment and contentment if I'm in Christ Jesus, no matter what the situation in my life. It's not about me. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's all about Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us to the glory of God, his Father. You know, the names Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior occur at least 51 times in the 104 verses of this letter. By far, Jesus Christ is the central theme of the book of Philippians. Simply put, there is joy in knowing and serving Jesus Christ. And at the heart of both knowing and serving him is the gospel and all of its progress. You can't separate the two. All that stands between you and joy is pride and self. They will keep you from both salvation and service. Now, if you're here today and you don't have joy, may I suggest to you that the joy you are seeking comes from the personalization of and the participation in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the focus of chapter 1. Briefly, Paul points out that the joyful promotion of the gospel involves a few things. And this, I'll give you a quick outline of what we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks. First thing it involves is a proper perspective on the work. Then a personal participation in the work. Then Paul gives a purposeful prayer for wisdom. And he talks about in verses 12 to 26, the powerful progress of the word of God. 
And then at the end of the chapter, he gives us a very practical prescription for the walk of the believer. The first thing we need to see is that the joyful promotion of the gospel involves a proper perspective on the work. What is your perspective on that? Well, first of all, you need a proper outlook on who we are. Who are we? Outlook determines outcome. Let me read to you the first verse here, just the first part of the first verse. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. By the way, we're only going through two verses today. How long do you think it's going to take us to get through Philippians? As long as it takes. That's right. Till we get it in our hearts and apply it to our lives. We need the proper outlook on who we are. Outlook determines outcome. How we act is determined by how we think, right? And there lies the great secret of how Paul could rejoice in the midst of awful conditions. If you think that you are God's gift to the world, you will act arrogantly. If you think you're worthless and God can't use you, you will not care for yourself. You won't even risk anything. You won't try anything for God. If you think that God owes you something, you will approach every situation in the church and outside the church looking to get something. However, if you have the right view of who you are in Christ, you will act accordingly. So who are we? What are we? What's Paul saying in the first verse? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. We are servants. We are servants. Paul and practically anyone who worked with Paul had the right outlook and consequently experienced the right outcome in their lives. They thought of themselves as slaves. Notice how the author of the letter refers to himself and his mentee, Timothy, as bondservants of Christ Jesus. That word, bondservants, it refers to one who is a slave servant. He is one who is bound and pledged to serve his master. This is, this is much different from a hired hand. The emphasis here is on complete submission to and dependence upon a master. This isn't a humble title that Paul is just writing here. This is an honest truth of who they thought they were. Why would Paul use such a disparaging term? People ask that all the time. Well, the Bible talks about people being slaves, and they don't seem to say anything bad against it. We in America, we bristle at the term slaves as being unconscionable and degrading, conjuring up all kinds of imagery of the Old South and its abuses prior to the Civil War, right? That's what you think of when you think of slavery. In fact, according to commentator Frank Thielman, the biblical institution was often far more humane than its more recent counterpart in America. The defining characteristic, however, for both was the total ownership of one by another, right? That's how you define slave. Total ownership of one by another. And that is exactly Paul's point. No other metaphor conveys quite so clearly the total claim of God upon a believer's life. We're slaves. And that was Paul's view. God's goals were his goals, and God's call was his mission. 
He viewed himself as owned solely by God. He was not his own. He was bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. And he was bound to serve him in complete obedience, even when doing so was personally inconvenient to him. He's writing from a prison. All those who are in Christ are bond servants of Christ, if you're in him. That must be the outlook of every Christian man, woman, and child. We are servants, completely dependent upon and submissive to our Lord. Our problem is that we have the idea that we've, since we've come to Christ, have been made kings and priests. Right? Kings and priests. And that's true biblically. We are kings and priests. But Scripture constantly reminds us that the very best leaders, whether priests or kings, are those who serve one another. The mindset of God's greatest men and women in the Bible was that of being a bondservant. Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 calls himself a bondservant and an apostle. In Titus chapter 1 verse 1, He says the same thing. However, here in this very personal letter in Philippians, the only position that Paul claims for himself and Timothy is that of a servant. Notice that the term apostle is not even present here. In James chapter 1, if you want to follow along, you can. If not, just I'll read it to you. James chapter 1. James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. And then in Jude, Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. You see, all these people viewed themselves the same way. Bondservants. In Revelation 15, in verse 3, Moses is called the bondservant of God. Jesus, our greatest example, is portrayed as the suffering servant who brings salvation in the book of Isaiah. Even Satan realizes that we are servants of God. In Acts chapter 16, which is, by the way, the backstory of how the Philippian church got started. We'll get into that a little bit later. But Acts chapter 16 and verse 17, a demon-possessed girl was following Paul around, and this is what she was saying. She kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Even Satan recognizes that people who are in Christ are bondservants of God. Do you see yourself? Do I see myself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave If you think that way, you will act that way. But how many of us regularly act like servants of Christ in each other? I'm I'm convicted by this. We all should be. Because too many times I catch myself conducting my spiritual life cafeteria style, self-service only. Right? What about you? That's not the attitude of a servant, is it? What are the characteristics of one who sees himself as a bondservant? 
Well, I'm just going to give you a few things here. You can write down the references and look them up later. I won't look at them up today. But a servant is not arrogant. He's not arrogant. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. A servant is obedient. Romans 6, 16 and 19. A servant is humble. Mark 10, 42 to 44, and Luke 17. As a matter of fact, let's look at the Luke 17 passage because this is instructive. These are, this is one of those passages that we'd like to just kind of throw out. Luke 17, verse 7. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? And then Jesus says, so you too, when you do all these things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. Is that a convicting passage or what? Andrew Murray once gave a near-perfect definition of humility. He wrote a little book on humility, which is classic. He said, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It's to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It's to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret, and I am at peace in a deep sea of calmness. But all around and above is trouble. The humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself. He simply doesn't think of himself at all. Unquote. Servant is humble. Fourthly, a servant is faithful. That's Matthew 24 in the parable of the, the virgins, verses 45 to 51. And then, fifthly, a servant is Christ like. And that's right here in the book of Philippians. I already quoted a verse about having this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus, in verse 5. And then it goes on to say that Jesus emptied himself and became a servant, even to the point of death, a bondservant. Jesus became a slave. And in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Christ calls us to join his fraternity, the holy order of the towel. It's like the towel over your arm. In John 13, Jesus modeled it for us by washing the disciples' feet. And he says, you too must wash each other's feet. And he didn't mean as a ritual. He meant in service. Do you have the outlook of a servant? Now, granted, some of us have the gift of helps, the gift of service. That's a little bit different. You can see those people. That doesn't happen to be my gift, the gift of helps. But you know that some, someone on our pastoral staff has that. Various people amongst our congregation have the gift of helps. You just ask them, they'll serve. That's a little bit different than what we're talking about here. However... The default mechanism in us, according to this, means that we should be ready, willing, and able to serve whenever asked. 
Rick Warren wrote in the four opening words of his bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life, it's not about you. If you're a servant of God, Warren later writes, you can't moonlight for yourself. Oh, that's a tough one. If you're a servant of God, you can't moonlight for yourself. That was Paul's outlook. And it was also Timothy's. Philippians chapter 2, skipping ahead, we'll go through this in more detail, but verse 19, look at it with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Even in the earliest of churches, there was still that issue of pride and self getting in the way. It's a pretty sad statement when Paul says, I have no one else around me, none of kindred spirit who will put your interests first. Would we be one of those that people, one of those people that Paul named? Is that our outlook? Because having the heart of a servant will cost us dearly. It really will. It will cost us our selfish pride. It will cost us our stubborn will. It will cost us our soft way of living. You know, the concept of serving Christ, the concept of the old, was the concept of the Old Testament slave. It was found in Exodus chapter 21. Here's an interesting little tidbit. In Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6, a master could set the slave free, but if the slave didn't want to go free, he could agree to continue serving the, serving the master. The slave could. But this is what would take place if that were the case. Verse 5 of Exodus 21, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Interesting practice, huh? You know, a lot of people wear crosses and sport them on their cars or T-shirts. Pretty fashionable. We may wear his cross, but are we willing to bear his cross? That's a big question. Maybe we should start a whole new deal. Instead of wearing a cross to identify yourself as a servant of Christ, as anyone who loves us, but maybe we should say, if anyone loves the master and wants to serve him permanently, I come to the front door of the church, we're going to drive an all through your ear. And we'll put an earring there, and that will tell the world that you are a servant of Christ. Because that's what they did in the Old Testament. Well, that's crazy, obviously. But that's the sentiment of it. That's what Christ really has done, isn't it? He's opened our ears to serve him obediently. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, there are approximately, I don't know, maybe 200 people in the church this morning. Many of them claim to be followers of Christ. How many people are active? It's a question. How many of the people in this building right now would consider themselves active? I'll tell you how many of them are active. All of them are active. All of us are active. A committed few are active for the Lord. 
the rest are acting for something or someone else. And I'm not judging who that is. The truth is there are no inactive members of Christ's body. None. That's an unbiblical concept. Jesus said it very plainly in Luke chapter 11, verse 23. He says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. To be with Christ means to be actively promoting the gospel somehow, some way, in your life, in your speech, whatever. Even just a little way, some way. But to be against him means to do nothing. To be anything else. According to Jesus, there is no neutral ground. You're either for him or you're against him. You're active or you're inactive. Inactive in the church, but active somewhere else, leading people away from Christ. Paul's opening address teaches us that to have a proper perspective, you need a proper outlook on what you are and who you are. Who you are. We're not only servants, but let's go on. Verse 1. But you didn't know you could get so much out of one verse of the Bible. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. All the, we're saints. We're not just bond servants. Paul says we're saints. Right? Yeah, praise God. The News Magazine 2020 did a program years ago about how saints are determined in the Roman Catholic Church. There's this long, drawn-out process called beatification and canonization, which usually takes years in which people are officially declared by the church to be saints. The criterion to becoming a saint includes things like proven miracles by the person, many testimonies to his or her life of virtue, etc., etc. In other words, not everyone can be a saint in that regard. According to the Cabinet of Catholic Information, these honored ones are, quote, inscribed in the catalog of the saints and invoked in public prayers. Churches are dedicated to God in memory of him and his feasts kept, and public honors are paid to his relics. This judgment of the church is infallible, unquote. This text, however, as well as many others, tells me something a little bit different. Paul's not using the word to refer to people of exemplary, near-perfect virtue and piety. Not by a long shot. As a matter of fact, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and to Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. And all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace it to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, saints by calling. Notice that? Paul puts an end to the notion that you have to be perfect to be a saint. Because these are the same people he called on the carpet in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians for committing sins in the church that were absolutely offensive to even unbelievers. But Paul here calls them saints. What is that about? The word literally means set apart ones. It's the term for holy, which means separate from common condition or use. To be a saint is to be set apart from the rest of the world as a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who has experienced the gracious work of God's redemption in their life. 
People, if you are in Christ, you are a saint by the standpoint of your relationship with Christ, singled out, chosen, and claimed by God as his child. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The word as it's used in Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament emphasizes not merely our practice, but our position. But remember, here's the corrective. You can't live any way you want. Go back to the fact that you're a slave, right? And the Scripture also urges us to live in a way consistent with that status of being a saint. Remember what I said earlier, how you act is determined by how you think? Well, if you don't think you're a saint, you're not going to act like one. Friends, a saint is defined in the Bible as anyone who is set apart for God's exclusive ownership and use. Therefore, we should act accordingly. Amen? So if you're in sin and you're a believer, you need to repent of that sin. Get right with God and start going down the road that he called you to go down. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. It's a process. It's a position, but it's also a process. Remember this. We do not do God a favor by serving him. He honors us by allowing us to serve with him. Have you ever thought about who the saints were, the founding members of the church at Philippi? For the backstory, we have to go back to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Just turn there for a moment. Paul and Timothy made their first converts and built the first church of Europe right here in Philippi on their second missionary journey. Let's start uh, in verse 14. Well, you know what? I could preach a whole sermon on Acts 16. I better not even go down here. The fact is, it's Paul and Paul came to Derby and Lystra, and um, he met Timothy there. But there his, his usual pattern was to go into the synagogue, preach the word, find some people there, try to make disciples. In this particular city, there was no synagogue. There weren't even enough males, Jewish males, to start a synagogue. And so he went down by the river where he expected to see some people praying to the place of prayer, and they're having a Bible study down there, Tuesday morning women's Bible study. It's just women down there, right? And in verse 14, he meets Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. First convert, right here, right? God started this church with a wealthy fashion designer, businesswoman named Lydia. Can you say Vera Wang? That's who Lydia was. The next person, follow along with me. Verse 16, it happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having the spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many, many days. She was working his nerves. But Paul was greatly annoyed, it says. And he turned and said to this spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. 
And then he ticked off all of her masters because, you know, they were making big-time money from all these idols that they were, they were crafting. And so here we are. It doesn't say the slave girl got saved. Chances are she did. So a slave girl, let's just say the slave girl, demon-possessed slave girl. And the third person that we find in chapter 16 was in verse 31. Actually, Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. They're praying. They're singing. Earthquake comes at midnight. All their chains are broken. They don't leave. The Philippian jailer, he thinks he's in trouble. If I lose these prisoners, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. He takes out his sword to kill himself. Paul says, hey, don't do that. We're still here. Next thing you know, he's asking Paul, what must I do to be saved? And the next thing after that is him and his whole household gets baptized. They're brought into the kingdom. So we have a blue-collar XGI duty-bound to the Roman Empire. Right? A rich woman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailer. You know what the Jewish head of the household's prayer every morning was? It was to give thanks to God that God had not made him a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. That was what they prayed every day. And yet, these are the same three people God used to start this church. As one author put it, probably not your dream team of church planting. Yet Paul calls them what? Saints. Saints. Listen, the gospel will not be deterred by socioeconomic, racial, or religious walls that we build up right? Matt Chandler says it this way, the Spirit works in strange ways to utterly redeem the unlikeliest and most diverse people. Jesus takes strangers and makes them a family. Apart from supernaturally reconciling ministry of grace, rich fashionistas are not doing life normally with poor demoniacs. It just isn't happening. But in Christ, it happens. Now listen, if God can build a church with them, in Philippi, what do you think he can do with you or with people outside these walls? What do you think? He won't do anything, however, until we come to, to him and let him use you in a way that he wants to use you for his kingdom. God wants to incorporate you into the building of his church, this church. He has set you apart from that, for that purpose. So let him. You are a servant and you are a saint if you're in Christ. And the joyful promotion of the gospel involves a proper perspective on that work, and that should be your outlook. Have the right outlook. Secondly, we need a proper perspective on how we're organized. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here just to point it out again in verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Ten-plus years after Paul and Timothy left this tiny group of believers that they started this church with, they had grown to the point of being effectively organized. Notice that Paul addresses the letter to the saints and including the overseers and deacons. The church's organization is very clear already. The head is Christ. His body is, is made up of saints who work together with overseers and deacons. And the word for overseers or bishop literally means to look upon. These are the elders of the church, the elders. And notice in verse 1 here that it's plural. It's a plurality of elders. 
Anybody that says, you know, the fact of the matter is the biblical model in the New Testament clearly teaches a plurality of pastors and elders, to be more precise. Nowhere in the New Testament does it advocate a one-man rule. You just don't find it. The elders are those God has called to lead and oversee the operations of the church in a spirit of humility and concern, the attitude of a servant, not lording it over the people. And the word for deacon here means ministers or servants, a different word than the one Paul used for bondservants. But these are men and women who help the elders by carrying out the tasks that would take them away from their primary duties of prayer and devotion to the word. This is how the early church was organized. These distinctions do not advocate some kind of hierarchy in the church, however. All are servants, all are saints, all are equal members of Christ's body. Amen? All right. You and I are here to serve Christ and his church, not the other way around. And how many times do we forget to make that distinction? How often do we come to church expecting to get something out of it? Good teaching, good music, good coffee, good fellowship, warm, fuzzy feelings. Now, how often do we come eager to give something to it? How often do we pray asking God that he will do something for us this Sunday? And how often do we pray asking God, Lord, use me this Sunday when I get to church? What can I do for you? In order for the church of God to have the power of God, it must have the heart of God, which is love. And love is always concerned with what it can give, not what it can get. And the last thing Paul gives us in his opening verses is power. It's not enough to have the proper outlook and the proper organization, but we need the proper view on how we need to operate. Here's the power, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we need to operate? In grace and peace. I love the way Homer Kent described this. God's grace is his favor, needed by men in countless ways and bestowed without regard to merit. Unmerited favor, grace. We got what we didn't deserve, salvation. For no other reason than grace, God stepped down from his throne of judgment to take upon himself the guilt and the penalty of human sin, and it was not done for his friends. The scripture says, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did it for his enemies. But now we're his sons and daughters. If you're in Christ, that's grace. That's how we need to operate as a community of believers, receiving God's grace and giving it to others. And Paul knew well what that grace was all about. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, close your eyes and listen to what Paul says. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to this service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's Paul's Attitude. 
It's only through the operation of grace that we can experience God's peace, the inner assurance that we are right with God, and that is what keeps us confident and content in the midst of turmoil. How else could Paul have written to his friends in Philippi with such joy from a Roman jail? The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said it extremely well. You will keep him in perfect peace, those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Joy is not happiness as much as it is gladness. It is the ecstasy of eternity in a soul that has made peace with God and is ready to do his will. That's what joy is. Are you ready to do it? Let me close with this. In 1959, there was a movie called The Hanging Tree. It was set in a Western gold mining camp in the late 1800s. And Gary Cooper played the role of a doctor for the camp. One day, a young boy was seen robbing gold from the camp and he was shot from a distance, but managed to hobble into hiding. All hands in the camp spread out to see who would be the first to kill him for this offense. The doctor found the hurt, frightened youth, and he took him into his cabin, nursed him, and removed the bullet. After the boy regained consciousness, he inquired what the doctor would do with him now. And the doctor held the slug in the boy's face like this. And he said, boy, you will be my servant for as long as I want you to be. Maybe forever. Because that is how long you would be dead if this slug had remained inside of you. That is the length of the condemnation for the slug of sin if it remains in us. The great physician has already performed the surgery to remove the slug. The painless operation of trust in him is the only requirement. It is our privilege to be servants of the one who healed us forever, isn't it? For without his healing, we also would be dead forever. Let's pray. Father, I don't even have the words, Lord, to thank you for the grace that you've poured out through us, to us, through the, your your son, Jesus Christ. He has removed the bullet of sin, Lord, that would have sent us into an eternal death and has replaced it with the power and the life of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we meditate on that and think about that in the coming days. And as we work through this book, May you begin to cultivate that deep, settled joy in our spirits and in our hearts that causes us to recognize who we are in Christ and serve you accordingly. For I ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, who gives us full joy. And everyone agreed and said, amen.